Hello, hello. We're live on uclaradio.com. This is the menu. Um, it is 11 a.m. Uh, the menu is UCLA Radio's premier food show um, where we talk about all things L.A. food, um, what it's like to be in the food industry, food journalism, and all of that sort. Thank you for tuning in. We have a very special guest today. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? who that actually is. Uh, yeah, my name is Farley Elliott. I run Eater here in Los Angeles. It's a kind of daily online publication where we talk a lot about the ins and outs of the restaurant industry and all things food. Sweet. Thank you very much for joining us, Farley. Of course. I love nothing more than to be in a kooky old college radio station. <laughs> That's us. That's exactly <laughs> us. Yeah. Um, so to start off, we just want to ask you, what did you have this week? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, I will say probably the best thing that I had this week, yesterday for the Super Bowl, I uh, snuck in a big old tray of barbecue from Moose Craft Barbecue, which oh. if you guys don't know who Moose are, they started in East L.A. as a husband and wife operation doing traditional Texas style barbecue, but with a lot of like East L.A. flair, like esquites, corn on the side, and just kind of like fun salsas. They do a Tolucan style green um, chili uh, sausage that they smoke, and it's a really interesting mix of barbecue barbecue from Texas that has its own traditions and then what we're doing in Los Angeles. They're now at Smorgasburg every week. Mm. They've got the longest lines oh. there. Um, so I picked up a bunch of brisket and ribs and stuff and uh, surprised all my friends. They were very happy. Wow. Nice. Wow. Sounds like a feast. Yeah. 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 It's a uh, I love, if I have one primary skill, it's really showing up people at a potluck. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, they must be really lucky to have you, you like an editor of the eater as a friend yeah it's, uh you know I, I have a dining budget like my job is to be out eating really? at restaurants yeah yeah so my whole thing is like i eat out almost every single meal in my entire life and a lot of that is done alone which i don't mind at all but i try to tell my friends and, and even tertiary friends like hey if you want to get a meal like i'm buying just let's go sometime and they'll be like oh i don't know he's a busy guy and i'm like no i'm telling you i'm sitting alone <laughs> at a table most of the time please let's eat together it'll be great Oh. All right. We're gonna. I have a lot of questions to ask you just about that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But um, what did you have this week, Belize? We're, we usually do a little intro to all of oh our. Oh my God! To sit yeah. through your. Yeah, you have to sit okay. through. Yeah. Us. Okay. We're gonna talk about That's this. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, um, I know we talked about this a lot um, outside of radio, but I went to Major Domo last week, and. I really liked my experience. The thing is, I went with my parents and my dad, being a dad, I don't think he was that pleased. <laughs> um, but uh, we had, wait, what did we have? Mm, okay, we had the marinated mushrooms. Nice. And I really liked that because sometimes I feel like the mushrooms get really like sweet with all the sauces, but it was still fresh and a little tangy, which I like in a sauce. Um, we also got the... Um, crispy potatoes um, with sesame and a lot of other seeds that I do not remember. <laughs> but it kind of tastes like a salty granola. Yeah, and it's got almost that like everything bagel spice, just like a yes. bunch of seeded shake on top. Exactly. Yeah. And then we had the macaroni truffle pasta. Mm -hmm. um, and I do not eat meat, but 
my family had the um, the ribeye with oh, cheese yeah. sauce. Nice. Yeah, they found it kind of heavy, but <laughs> overall, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure if you get ribeye with cheese sauce, you should. Yeah, it it, to be a it's just heavy. like <laughs> a, a huge chunk of meat in a really full. Um, broth, and yeah. then they put the melted cheese on top. So I kind of get why they would say <laughs> it was heavy. Yeah. But um, yeah, overall, I really liked it because it. I feel like it tried to do something different with food that we haven't seen before. And everything, even though they were simple, like mushrooms or potatoes, were transformed into something different, which I appreciated. What about you? Um, I went to Republic for the first time. Oh, I'm congratulations. Thank Yay. you very much. Oh, thank you, thank you. What, breakfast, lunch, dinner? Uh, for, yeah, brunch, lunch, Got weekend, it. yeah. Um, <laughs> I know I'm late to the ball game. Um, for your listeners, Republic is like a, what, French bakery and um, very nice sit-down um, restaurant. There's, it's a team of two, right? It's a husband and wife. If I'm yes. Yeah. yeah. It is. It is Walter and Margarita Mansky. Mm-hmm. And uh, please tell us about your meal, and then I will go on my long screed about how amazing Republique is. Yes. <laughs> please. Please. Um, so it was raining um, outside, and you have to stand in line for brunch. But it was beautiful, and it was a really short wait. Um, it's a counter service at lunch and brunch or not counter service so you go and order and then you sit down um but the line is next to all these beautiful pastries and it's just overwhelming um but we got a pastry we got a, a market fruit brioche um which is necessary i think if i think market fruit is in any pastry is <laughs> absolutely the way to go um then i got the chicken and waffles and my partner got the mushroom toast both super um rich and and delicious Perfectly balanced flavors. My favorite part of the chicken and waffles, um, which I did not expect, were these little peppers that they add on top, Mm -hmm. which I've never had on chicken and waffles. Um, (laughs) And it was, I think they're like, they give a little bit of Korean flavor. You know, they have that kimchi rice bowl that I got. I've had that at their, like, small shop at uh, Grand Central Market. Yeah, sorry, sorry store. Yeah, exactly, sorry, sorry store. And uh, it reminded me of that. And the gravy was phenomenal. The mushroom toast was wonderful. Probably (laughs) my partner said it was one of the best toasts that um, she's had in a forever. So I was finally glad I went. The space is beautiful as always. Yeah. Please yeah, enlighten you, me. Well, uh, as a sidebar to my upcoming sidebar, uh, do you guys know about the history of that space at all? No. So I know a little bit. It's It was a, I mean, nothing too specific, sure. but it was a, a a pretty famous LA restaurant for a while that closed down a couple years ago. Exactly. Years yeah. Ago, right? So it was oh. called Campanile and Campanile is one of the seminal restaurants of like bygone era Los Angeles. It was where so many people that you guys would know from Mark Peel to Nancy Silverton and a bunch of other folks who started working the line or even working service on the floor have gone on to create restaurants all over town. And it was truly a beautiful space that like meant a lot to the upcoming culinary scene of what we now see in Los Angeles. Furthermore, when you first walk in on the right-hand side and you're talking about that long line of pastries, that space, that tall little separate space on the right-hand side before you get into the main dining room to the left was the original location of La Brea Bakery. Oh, Nancy Silverton, who has since sold out of the company, but like the 30-year-old, like, 
first huge bakery to do it in Los Angeles that's now sold nationwide. Just that little sliver on the right-hand side was the original La Brea Bakery. Isn't there a La Brea mm. Bakery literally, like, right across the street? Well, like, that's it. They Nancy Silverton um, sold out, made a bunch of money, yeah. um, almost immediately lost all of it in the Bernie Madoff scandal. Oh, my gosh. Unfortunately. Um, and so La Brea Bakery became owned just like a capitalist kind of funded thing. And so they weren't able to keep the building that is now Ray Public. So they put as a sort of herald to the original location at the end of the block, a new standalone La Brea Bakery. Yeah, yeah but Sweet. the original home was in the right-hand side right there. So uh, my long actual screen <laughs> on <laughs> Ray Public. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's run by a husband and wife, Margarita and uh, Walter Mansky. Margarita is Filipino by heritage, and her family is still back in the Philippines. And so they actually have five restaurants in the Philippines that are called Wildflower that, oh. that look almost exactly like Ray Public. And it's really hitting at this interesting time in not only Los Angeles, but also in the Philippines, where you've got the emerging middle class a lot along with like a lot of Chinese influx of, of money through Southeast Asia. And so people are looking to America. They were an American protectorate until the 1940s. They speak English. They have high speed Internet. And they say, we, we want to eat how Angelinos are eating. We want to eat how Americans are eating. And so they really take on as heroes, these young Filipino people that are making good in L.A., like Margarita Mansky. And so she's been able to go back with her family and create these restaurants called Wildflower. And the crazy part is the five most popular daily lunchtime menu items at Republic in Los Angeles are roughly the same five most popular menu items in the Philippines. Mm. Like that's the reason that the adobo pork fried rice is still on the menu. The kimchi bowls are still on the menu because they do so well, not only here, but also in the Philippines. And then you tag on this other idea of places like Lhasa in downtown that's yes. doing modern Filipino food. And so you've mm -hmm. got all these first generation cooks that are sick of looking down in the pan and cooking spaghetti when they could have be cooking, you know, tapsalog or or something themselves. And so they're starting to herald back to the Philippines, like rice bar in downtown, and using heirloom grain rice from the Philippines as a way to reconnect with their heritage. And so you have these two converging ideas almost crossing over the Pacific, like Filipinos looking to America and, and young Filipino Americans looking back to the Philippines. And it's all happening in the middle of this like great zeitgeist that is the dining scene in L.A. It's incredible. That's awesome. I, I yeah. You think we're um, sort of... Um, super lucky to have all these different people in LA, right? I think without them, it, these dining scenes wouldn't exist. Yeah, and I, I certainly, I grew up in upstate New York. I did not know that the you know single largest Asian population in California were Filipinos. Like, that just was not anything that was ever on my radar coming from another part of the country. And so it's really, really beautiful. And I think the best part of my job is getting to drill down into communities that are not my own and not trying to take ownership of it in any way, but to listen and learn from those people and help to share their stories with a wider audience that also may not know. Hmm. All right, let's. We're gonna we're gonna talk food. I think in the second half, we want to ask you yes. some dirty details about <laughs> your origin and uh, and origin what it's like story. to be senior editor. <laughs> Go for it, please. Yeah. Um, so, first question: What did you want to be when you grew up? when you were young, yeah. when you were growing up? So so many different things. <laughs> I wanted to be a firefighter at one point. Um, my, my, I was saying just off mic, my whole family runs a lumberjacking company, essentially in upstate New York, really small town, kind of uh, right on the Canadian border. And so a lot of it, I'm one of six kids, was the idea that I was going to continue to work in the family business. My dad's one of nine. That was all just kind of what everybody did. But pretty quickly, once I got into high school and, and towards the end of high school, I, I thought I was going to at least go away to college. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. And it was something that became increasingly important to me. And then once I kind of grew those boundaries and started to see what else was out there in the world, uh, it, it really became necessary 
personally, I think, to start expanding my horizons. And I've now lived in Los Angeles just about longer than I've lived anywhere else. And I love it for its multicultural diversity for the food scene. There's always a story to tell. Um, but, yeah, it was a lot of different things. Even in, like, fourth and fifth grade, okay. I used to write little short stories about um, – you know, battles you might not have heard about from the American Civil War and things like that. No, just like submit them to the town newspaper. <laughs> so I've always had a little bit of a writerly streak and an, an eagerness to learn about things that are not naturally being covered. So then when was it you realized that food journalism or, or something related to food was something that you wanted to do? I think the first time I ever really, there's two answers to this question. The first time I ever really got excited about a restaurant and the idea that a restaurant was more than just what you ate and what was presented on the plate to you. There was a place in Watertown, New York, near where I grew up, called Harvey's Hots. And it was run by this you know, curmudgeonly old man who made hot dogs on a flat top and, and hamburgers, never cheeseburgers. He was convinced <laughs> that like, cheese was going to like ruin his whole operation for some reason. He was like, <laughs> out of his mind. He, you know, Bean chili in the corner and just like the, the nutsiest, kookiest old guy. And they had little kitschy things on the walls that would be like uh, a bear trap and it would say like uh, customer service press button here like just, just weird old <laughs> hokey things and uh, the hot socks were so great and just to go in and sit and see all these old timers drinking coffee and like hanging out with the owner it was like the first time I ever understood the sense of community when it comes to a restaurant so I think really tracing it back to there is probably a good place to start but the business side of it the journalism side of it um, it wasn't until I lived in Los Angeles for years I used to do comedy writing and different things like that on the side and and pretty quickly I realized like okay what am I actually interested in I, I want to tell interesting stories about um, people and I want to have a sense that that my voice is making it somewhere that I'm not just writing something handing it to a producer and that producer says thanks and puts it in the drawer and so the ability to get almost into instantaneous feedback by writing about food by talking about food with people and then going to eat at a restaurant and having that loop get closed in front of me um, became something that was really important to me and so I started transitioning I worked for free for LAist for a while and then a little bit of money for KCT a little more money for LA Weekly and Serious Eats and then was able to kind of land into this job at Eater, which is now going on full-time four years. Yeah. 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 I wrote a book along the way. All sorts of crazy yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We have a couple of questions about the book later on as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Do you remember what your one of your first articles was? What was about? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, tacos, burgers, and beer. Yeah. Like, the you know, broke guy living in Los <laughs> Angeles. So the way it used to work, I moved to L.A. with a backpack and a motorcycle, and I would had a day job up on Sunset Boulevard. I used to sell uh, sunglasses, like wholesale, basically, for a company called Oliver Peoples. And then uh, I went over to the Upright Citizens Brigade in Hollywood, and I was, on a, I was on a house team there, and I'd perform every week. And, you know, you're getting in front of agents and different stuff like that. And I would leave that scene at about 1 in the morning, and I would catch a new taco truck every wow. single night on the way home. I lived down by Culver City. And for me... I'm type A enough. If I go to one place, I want to go to two. If I go to two, I want to go to 100. And I want to have a comparison chart for each of them, you know? So I started getting further and further down this rabbit hole pretty quickly. And, and within maybe the first year, I'd been to 125 places. By the second year, I'd been to uh, around 300. Wow. And so uh -huh. it, I had a Google map. And the map would have little pins on it on where <laughs> I'd been and, you know, what I'd like to eat. And oh, I got to go to this next place. And it started making its rounds around a little bit. And it got into the hands of some folks at LAist. And, and they were like, hey, would you want to write about this? And I said, absolutely. You know, I'm, it's for zero dollars. I'll do it. Like, <laughs> and that that was kind of the beginning of it, you know. And, and e even at the beginning, it's it's there's – 
no one's hiding the fact that it is a delicate situation to be a guy who did not grow up in Los Angeles, a white dude who does not naturally speak the language, to be talking about tacos. There are always going to be more informed and better people with a stronger voice to do that. The only way that I can come at it is not from a position of strength, but from a position, like I said before, of like a willingness to listen. Every time I go to a taco place, I want to know what they're doing and why they're doing it, not because I want to steal it for myself, but because I want to share it with other people and have their permission in the process. So it's been a lot of that from the beginning tacos and then getting into like you know eating 100 burgers in 30 days or whatever it was you know whatever goofy things you think you could get paid for along the way that's a pretty good um cheap way to start out too taco yeah. trucks right you, i mean you can yeah. eat like a king for five dollars yeah. absolutely and still to this day you know there's a lot that goes into that i i'm not saying that five dollars for mexican food is the standard by which we should be paying for all mexican food but if you are living a relatively inexpensive life and trying to figure out a city you could do worse than going to a new taco stand every night and talking to people absolutely yeah that's so true um so after no not after actually how we talked about how you became the senior editor mm -hmm. for eater la but what do you exactly do for them? It's a, it's a great <laughs> question, one I'm still trying to figure out. <laughs> so Eater LA is a lot of things to a lot of different people. We're pretty large. Um, we're kind of the second biggest city site outside of New York City. So for folks who don't know, Eater Los Angeles is part of a network of sites. We've got 24 city sites across America as well as Montreal and London. And we also have a national side that covers like things internationally, go on trips, hey, here's 12 great places to eat in Rome, different things like that. So I run the location in Los Angeles. Last month we did you know close to 4 million page views a month. We're trying to reach about half the city in a given month and and instead of a place opens we go in we tell one story we leave my job is to write anywhere from four to six stories a day that are just about the churn of restaurants in los angeles we do maps people can come find us that way 12 great places to eat a breakfast burrito we also talk a lot about restaurant openings closings where chefs are going tidbits and news insider industry sort of things and then big features on old hollywood places that you might have forgotten about or people that are making food that don't necessarily have a name attached to themselves yet so um, it, it really depends on, on any given day i'm doing a lot of that sort of stuff and sometimes none of it at all most of what i've been known for is my job primarily is to be the guy who gets the information before anybody else if you whoever is listening to this or going to the site happens to hear about a restaurant in your neighborhood i want to be the guy you heard it from simple as that so it's a lot about making connections it's a lot about talking to people i'm not anonymous i'm not a food critic i never my opinion never factors into it i'm not writing in the first person so it's just like any other reporter running the beat talking to people taking notes keeping your ear to the ground connecting dots making sure it's viable accurate information that you can put on the website and then going from there yeah. wow. so, so you're all over la you are just booking it. yeah <laughs> i try to be yeah yeah. How, what's I mean, how what's, do you keep up? Yeah, what's driving <laughs> all over? Like, yeah, it's uh, you know, thankfully now I, I've I've built a, enough of a network. I think that a lot of information comes to me instead of the other way around. And here's my triangle, and I, I'm I'm not shy about telling other people this. At the top of the pyramid, I want people to. Uh, see the site and think that I do a good job, know my name, associate my name with quality work. The right-hand side of that triangle is I want people to see me in their restaurant, spending money, being a nice person, having a good time. I never want to walk through the front door of a restaurant and the maitre d' or the chef sees me and goes, oh, there goes a hundred bucks because this guy's some nobody blogger who's demanding free food in exchange for a photo. That's not my life. And the third part of that triangle is I want you in the back of your mind to think, he probably already has the information that I'm trying to hide anyway. <laughs> and if I can live there, 
then people will just come to me naturally. And that was the first two years of my life was getting to that point. And now it's about maintaining it. You know, I'm texting and taking phone calls and emailing with people all day long about stuff that has um, you know, varying lengths of lead time when it comes to when we can publish information, who's going to leave what job and on what terms. But if I can stay ahead in that sense, like that's how we win. The LA Times is a is a wonderful organization and a very large and very very well moneyed organization. <laughs> so um, I'm not necessarily going to win by having them. You know, they get to fly people to Mexico City to talk about stuff for a weekend. I I get to sit here in my car and make sure that I get to news first because you can still break stuff in your local community. So do chefs or owners contact you directly or they say hey farley come i have this new restaurant that just opened check it out well honestly uh, i would even backtrack slightly from there if i'm in a restaurant that just opened i'm probably too late mm. my job you know you, yeah. you take a look at like the manufacturing yeah, yeah forty-four thousand square feet in the road downtown i've been talking about that project since 2015 yeah. and it only just opened last week howland rays i've probably written about 50 times in my <laughs> life you know they got a five-hour line on a weekend because it's like a long holiday great that's a story like Anything that is of interest to the readers that we serve and I think isn't naturally being talked about, I'm happy to be there and tell that story. So to answer your point more broadly, yeah, every single day I'm having conversations dozens of times a day with people at varying levels of the restaurant industry. Uh, PR does certainly play a part in that, but I never want people to think that my job is only to deal with restaurants that have enough money to be able to afford PR. That's not how I started. You know, I started writing about taco guys that didn't have a name on their corner and that's how I'd like to remain. It's easy to get caught up in the money of what restaurant is. It's easy to only eat at places like Republique and Major Domo, as delicious as they are. But, you know, Moosecraft Barbecue, the place I mentioned at the top, they started, as I said, in a backyard in East L.A., just posting on Instagram, hey, we're selling brisket if anybody happens to come by. Getting there first and telling that story and watch that family to be able to grow into a restaurant that is now the most successful thing at Smorgasburg that attracts 8,000 people on a given weekend. I'm not benefiting financially from that, but it makes me feel good to know that I can help cool people that are already doing cool stuff to reach a wider audience. That's great. Well. Um, okay. Yeah. So let's see. Helen Rays. You talked about Helen Rays. Yeah. Our previous guest also had line, front of the line passes. Um, Wait, who, who was your previous guest if I can ask? Oh, we invited Hangry Diary. Oh, cool. The Instagram blog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is is that a thing that all LA uh, <laughs> food phenoms get to have? <laughs> so yeah, I I I mentioned off air about about getting to skip the line at Howland Rays because my little brother was in town and it was our first meal off the airplane. You know, um, I I try as hard as I can not to be a guy who who pulls stuff like that. Um, access is cool; it's a really fun perk of the job. I get to be at some parties that other people don't get to be at, or something. But um, to take that stuff to heart, I think is uh, uh, it's easy to rot yourself from the inside out and get like <laughs> mad with power or something. Um, the truth is, you know, I almost never make a reservation at a restaurant not because um, I'm too cool for it or I'm texting somebody, but because I want to sit at the bar like a nobody and. You know, I, I was, did this at the Nomad last week in downtown. They just got kind of a middle of the road review from the LA Times, one of their new critics, and I thought, oh, I haven't been in a little while. You know, in, instead of me going in and shaking hands with the person who runs the front desk, even though it's good to have that relationship, let me see if I can sneak in and sit at the bar and find out for myself if I'm really still liking the food. And that's exactly what I did. Nobody came and bothered me. Nobody had any idea who I was. And the truth is, everybody else in that dining room that was eating or has been eating there two times a week, three times a week, whatever, 
are in a way more important than I am because that's how you actually sustain a business. Me coming around and writing something even 45 times for Howlin' Ray's doesn't mean that the hours are, that it's a five hour line just because of me. It's people who want to be there on their own time and that sort of cachet really matters. So to circle it back around, Sure, if my 21-year-old brother is in town and I'm absolutely wanting to impress him like an older <laughs> brother should, I'm going to skip the line at Holland Race because I can do that. And it's it's not really something I like to spend a lot of time doing otherwise because it, it's, it's a bad look. Okay. I want to talk about food a little bit. Great. Um, <laughs> so what are some new openings that excite you in L.A. at the moment? Well, Manufactory, obviously, we okay. touched on a little bit. Just to broaden that scope, it is Chris Bianco out of Phoenix, who runs Pizzeria Bianco, widely hailed as one of the best pizza makers in America. And the folks from Tartine, Elizabeth Pruitt and Chad Robertson. And Tartine is is easily a top five restaurant in San Francisco. Lines around the door for their original bakery always has been. So these two kind of converge to make an L.A. version of what they have in San Francisco, which is called the Manufactory. And they roast coffee downstairs. They make thousands of loaves of bread every day. Their prep space alone is you know, four times bigger than most other restaurants in L.A., and they're doing a lot. There's a coffee and takeout window with ice cream and daytime soups and salads and sandwiches and a marketplace. They also have an all-day kind of sit-down cafe, and then very soon, coming next month, on the other side of that open kitchen will be a restaurant called Alameda Supper Club, which is going to be dinner time service, mostly Chris Bianco-inspired, so like wood-fired vegetables, breads, things like that, hopefully some pizzas. Everyone's very worried whether or not they're going to get true <laughs> Chris Bianco pizza. And then an outside bar and, and all sorts of really, really fun stuff. So, you know, there's no denying that Ellie is seen as the kind of um, cultural leader when it comes to food in America right now. And you see coming along with that is a lot of money just around the corner from where they are in the Arts District. Stephanie Izard from Girl on the Go, a very famous group out of Chicago, is coming to put a restaurant. Marissa Perello from San Francisco. Michelin star chef is opening at the row literally 15 feet or 30 feet from Manufactory. And so there's certainly a lot of money that's coming in, and it, it does make it very, very exciting. The other new recently opened restaurant that I would point you to is Nightshade, mm -hmm. also down in the Arts District. May Lynn from Top Chef. Again, like the, the, the movement of female chefs in, in downtown in the arts district is like pretty unbelievable. Uh, May Lynn's restaurant is really pretty compact. It's set kind of back from the street on this old loading dock, and it's got maybe 15 items on the whole menu. This Mapo Tofu lasagna, which is such a brilliant idea for L.A. that I don't believe anybody's ever done before and I'm sort of shocked by. <laughs> Just taking those kind of grinded pork flavors and, and, and the tofu and then layering it into you know 25 layers of lasagna and cutting you a thin slice. It's just like delicious and decadent. The shrimp toast is really great. All the desserts come from uh, a guy named Max who used to do all the desserts at Cato out here in mm -hmm. West L.A. And it's just a really great example of what dining in Los Angeles looks like now. It's a fun, small, energetic environment with food that is familiar in flavor but different in execution. That, Like you said, that area is really, really mm -hmm. going crazy, the Arch District. What do you think it is about that, that area that's drawing people? Well, it, I mean, in some sense, like a trend follows a trend. Yeah. The, you know, <laughs> we're going to keep talking about Holland Rays, I guess. But, the you know, the, the five-hour line exists because people want to wait in a five-hour line at some level because there's something interesting about that. And uh, the truth is the Arts District doesn't have a ton of residential density. You know, it's, it's probably under 10,000 people who live there full time. So it is a, a driving kind of community for these restaurants. But what you get on the upside is, is a ton of really cool spaces that you can't necessarily find or are harder to find in other parts of Los Angeles. And you've got to think about it. If you're coming from San Francisco, if you're coming from New York City or even Chicago, 
you know, the the retail market when it comes to buying restaurant space is still insane mm-hmm. in those other cities. It's bad in L.A., but it's not New York City bad. It's not San Francisco bad. And so you can get a, a reasonable amount of space for a relatively reasonable price. The interesting thing, I think, is right around the corner from Nightshade, literally Salt Bay is opening a restaurant. Oh. So, like, <laughs> that's going to be insane when it finally opens and a real idea that, like, oh, the Arts District is just, it's all the way overblown now. Like, we've got to move on. Once Salt Bay's here, it's done. He killed the party. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> he killed the party in Turkey, too. Yeah. I'm from Turkey. Oh, okay. Yeah, and there were great, like, meat, charcuteries and, like, restaurants mm-hmm. in Istanbul. And then he came along. He made this... He made the whole thing, you know, uh, a trend. And it's like, it was a really cultural, like, Turkish thing to have meat on your plate. Yeah. And then he came in, and it's, <laughs> you know, he, I don't know. I'm like, I'm not a huge fan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, uh, it's very hard, I would have to imagine, to see something that does matter to a particular culture or a particular region get diluted in such a comical way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just the, the everything about the flair is so unsettling for people who truly honestly care about restaurants. But <laughs> he's got money and he's coming to the arts district, so away <laughs> we go. Yeah, um, exactly. So we talked about some openings, but what about some closures? What's the deal with restaurants in L.A. closing so quickly in that, that turnaround? So... I get asked this question a lot. You know, people have a restaurant that really matters to them uh, personally or in their neighborhood. And the question is always, why did it close? Why did it close? And and the truth is restaurants almost always close for one of three reasons. They close because, simply put, they weren't making enough money. Or they close because of an internal dispute either between the chef owner and some money people or, you know, a father and son can't come to an agreement or somebody dies in the family or something like that. Or there's an issue with the property. The place burns down. It gets raised for a development or something like that. But almost always it's the first one. The restaurants simply close because they thought they could make more money than they actually did. And you take a place like Soto in just south of Beverly Hills, kind of West L.A. area, uh, closed right around the 10-year mark, beautiful restaurant, kind of casual, classic American, you know, meatballs, pizza, spaghetti, that sort of stuff, really rustic, really delicious. Unfortunately, it was an investor issue. You know, people who decided that they had enough of a financial stake in the restaurant that they wanted things to operate a certain way and a chef or some other partners operating in a different way. And it all kind of fell apart pretty quickly. And those ones are the ones that really hurt. You know, I I understand a restaurant that closes after 10 months because people just missed the mark. And that stinks for the folks who actually put their money into it. But the ones that were doing well, the ones that just like sadly come out of nowhere to disappear, always the ones that break my heart. Yeah. Do you have any other um, specific examples? Uh, yeah, I will say the uh, probably that one of the saddest restaurant closures I've ever covered was pretty recently um, a small place called Capital Burger, Pico and Crenshaw. It's been there for 53 years. Wow. It was oh, wow. run for a really long time. So uh, L.A., just as a slight sidebar, has an interesting history when it comes to um, the proliferation of Greek diners. You still see this in Chicago and New York City a lot. Most of the Greeks have since moved on. But you drive around the city, places like Patra's, Dino's, they were all originally run by Greek diner families that immigrated to California. California, you know, 75 years ago. And this was one of those, you know, uh, the uh, uh, Papadopoulos family, I believe, was running Capital Burger and had been for years. And they have the euros on the menu. And then eventually those get turned away because nobody's ordering them anymore. And you get into like the burritos and pastrami and chili cheese fries. But it had stayed as a, a, a 
part of this neighborhood for so long and the the patriarch of the family died i guess gosh going on seven years ago now and his son um john stamos unrelated to the actual (laughs) his name john stamos um his son had tried to run it for a number of years and and truly really grew up in the restaurant back when it was um a lot of gang activity back during the la riots i mean this place maintained its status as a really great location for a simple cheeseburger and a box of fries and i got tipped off to a friend of mine that they had driven by and that they were just pulling kitchen equipment out. And I, I literally just got in my car and raced over there okay. as fast as I could. I mean, John, you know, what's happening? And, you know, the truth is uh, development comes for everybody. You know, unless you own your building, unless you own the land, in due time, something will happen. The rent will rise. Somebody will decide that they want the property more than you do. And before you know it, you're out on the street. And it really, really stinks for a community like that that is still relatively residential outside of its main thoroughfares like Crenshaw and where people really come to rely on an inexpensive, really delicious meal, especially if it's one that's been in the neighborhood for generations. And to see something like that leave is um, really, really sad. Yeah. Do you think that... Um, this great development that's happening right now in L.A. will lead to more closures from local neighborhood spots? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you see even now, Nate Niles in Beverly Hills just got saved by Irving Azoff, like a huge billionaire from the um, music industry. You know, He did all the booking for years for the forum and is a big manager, the Eagles and different bands like that. You know, He partnered up with Cindy Crawford's family and a bunch of other people to literally put in the money to buy the business Nate Niles, which is one of the most iconic Jewish delis in Los mm-hmm. Angeles. And any given day during the week, you could go in and like Larry King's having breakfast or whatever. But as much as as powerful as those people are and as much money as they have, they could only save the business. They couldn't save the property. So Nate Niles is still moving. They're moving around the corner to what used to be a steakhouse called Wolfgang's, and they're going to basically recreate it. And it remains to be seen whether or not the patina and the shine of the place can still carry over to a new location. But, you know, how much does it say that one of the most powerful and wealthiest people in Los Angeles couldn't even save a location? They could save a business only. And so, as I said, ultimately development comes for everybody. And they're going to put a high rise on where Nate and Al's used to be and the world will be forever changed and most people will probably forget. Mm. <laughs> um, I'm from Venice and that's been, you know, very, very prevalent there. I had, let's see, we, my, me and my family used to go to Tlapazola Grill, mm-hmm. um, uh, Abbott, um, Habit, right, mm-hmm. right on, right across from Salt and Shaw. Um, but then, you know, they're replaced well, by Snapchat. We're not, <laughs> we don't <laughs> talk with them. You know, there are these, yeah, I'm sure, you know, Felix, I'm sure Felix took over a spot. Of yeah, Felix took over Joe's, and Joe's had Joe's. been there 20 years. That's like, right. Well, a fine Aww. dining staple on the right. west side. Um, so, but there's a duality to that. There's a lot of people who value these new high-end restaurants. Mm-hmm. What, you know, what is this um, new gentrification story? You know, there's a balance. I don't yeah, no, it, it's a it's a difficult thing to parse out. Yeah. And, and um, I wrote a story not that long ago about the Pacific Palisades new development. And yeah. um, uh, essentially it, it's owned and operated by Rick Caruso, who's the guy behind the Grove and the Americana. And, and most people, when I tell them, are very surprised to learn that the Grove is the single highest trafficked tourist destination on the West Coast. It does more annual visitors than Disneyland. And this is a guy who is, you know, worth four and a half billion dollars. His father was at one time the single largest car dealership owner in America, founded Dollar Rent-A-Car. And because he has money and access, he is able to define what millions upon millions of people every single year, both who live here and come from abroad, get to see when they're wandering around, interacting at a retail and restaurant level. And there's a ton of power that comes with that. 
So the Palisades development took three and a half acres of their quote unquote downtown, raised the entire thing and rebuilt it in the image of a sort of pseudo 1950s Americana. And the 1950s in America were pretty great for kind of one group of people, which is like <laughs> white men. And, and you know, what does that mean? Even if the neighborhood, which has a bunch of celebrities that already live there, even if that neighborhood wants it because they haven't necessarily had something like it before and they don't want to have to drive to the Grove, do you still have an obligation to think culturally, to think creatively, and to diversify your thinking when you are building projects like this? I would argue, yes, I think that you do. But the truth is the developers aren't under any legal mandate to do that. And so we are going to continue to see, in some sense, a wealthy homogenization of L.A. The scary stuff really becomes when Google moves in across the street from the Apple pan on Pico Boulevard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've got a story that I won't give away here that is coming out this week about the Apple pan and what's to happen with that sort of place. But, you know, as you get that kind of money encroaching into neighborhoods, what does it do to the establishment? It it still remains to be seen in a lot of cases. Oh, don't scare me, Farley. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. Okay. Um, so you wrote a book. I you did. You wrote a book, Los Angeles Street Food. I'm, I'm as shocked as you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what? that sounds difficult. That sounds hard. How, what was that experience like? How long did that take you? It was easily the hardest professional thing I've ever done. And the way you've got to realize it, like the, the year 2015, the year that I wrote that book, um, my first full year at Eater, and, and Eater is such a different beast than when I was freelancing for years for places like LA Weekly. Usually you get kind of paid to tell one story and leave, and you can kind of determine your own level of involvement, how much I'm going to work at a given time period because I'm freelance. But at Eater, it's, it's full bore ahead all the time. And I, I'm still, I'm writing, you know, four to six stories a day usually and, and doing that while also learning on the job is a pretty unique challenge to itself but add on writing a 65,000 word book and it was the same year I got uh, married <laughs> uh, yeah I took a much needed vacation that's for sure but no it, it, the truth is I was writing for about two and a half years I was writing kind of weekly content for serious seats out of New York back when they used to do a lot more localized stuff now they're mostly just a recipe site and I would cover a lot of the street food scene in LA so I was very thankful to have already done a ton of the legwork in, in previous stories to be able to shine on the book and make that together but it's, it's all original writing it's all original words you still have to go back through it and do a lot of calling figuring out what's still there figuring out what you've learned along the way do interviews and that sort of stuff so really rewarding I'm super glad that it's out there again I think there are better voices from Bill Esparza to Gustavo Ariano to be writing about this sort of stuff but if you're just looking primarily for a history of why Los Angeles is such a unique street food city in line with Mexico City or Singapore or something like that. You know, why there aren't taco carts on every corner in New York City as well. I, I think it's a pretty good retrospective of that. Um, what do you think? Will, we, we know we talked about gentrification and development a little bit. What will happen to food trucks when, you know with that process? Well, if anything, food trucks are going to uh, thrive and have continued to thrive. I mean, I feel like I talk about this all the time. You know, street food in Los Angeles predates the, the founding of the city in many ways. You know, it has always been here. These travelers who would come by train to downtown Los Angeles would have these write in their travel logs about how they didn't think there were any indoor restaurants in Los Angeles because you'd get off the train and it was just tamale men everywhere. And you, you know, <laughs> couldn't even make it through that scene before you got fed something to make it to the bar or the cantina whatever. And so I think it's going to continue to proliferate. What's really going to be scary is the 65-seat small restaurant, the Elementos of the world in Silver Lake that are delicious, chef-driven, 
have a relatively high price point, but can't necessarily do the kind of volume at the money that's needed in order to stay successful. So there's always going to be room for food trucks, for taco carts. One of the most popular food stories to come out of the past two months is a place called Tacos 1986 that just opened really recently in Koreatown. They were in Hollywood briefly and they got shut down, but right by the Wiltern at like Western and Wilshire, and they came out doing Tijuana-style carne asada tacos on corn tortillas, a big, thick swipe of guacamole. And it's, like, delicious. You can get it with, like, a griddle of cheese on and some beans if you want. And it's just they're they're heavily branded. They're on Instagram. They know exactly who they are and what they're doing. And they're playing to lines that are hundreds of people in a given night right next to a club. And they're now also doing Smorgasburg. So okay. people will continue to innovate. They'll continue to take regionally specific foods and make sure that they're good and to serve them in communities that still offer that sort of stuff. And one more caveat I would say as I continue to scream at you through my microphone, um, you know, the the truth is, uh, I'll give you an example. I I met a guy not that long ago who was a Hawaiian-American who had had moved um, over here in his teenage years to try to play football professionally. Kind of washed out, didn't really make it, ended up going to culinary school, working for Wolfgang Puck's catering department. And now he lives down in the South Bay and he cooks this kind of like um, Hawaiian Mexican fusion food, like char siu quesadillas and different things like that. And it's really delicious and really unique. And there's obviously a huge population of of expat um, people from Pacific Islands that live in the South Bay. And so you talk to this guy and he's he could not be more directly only feeding his community. He has no need for anybody else. He makes enough money. He's happy. He you know, does church events, community events. He goes to like reggae festivals, whatever it is. And he cooks for these people that naturally want him there. But I sat down and talking to him, he says, oh, you know, it's my wife and I's wedding anniversary. We're thinking about driving up to downtown LA for dinner. Where should we eat? And I said, well, if you haven't been in a couple of years, you should go to Bestia. You know, it's the original arts district restaurant that put it on the map. They're still doing 600 people on a Saturday night. It is probably one of the top five most known restaurants in Los Angeles. And he looked at me and he says, Bestie, what's that? I've never heard of it. And you realize, like, that's not on him. He just is doing exactly what he naturally should be doing, which is making money serving the people that need him the most directly around him. So as much as we talk about the Besties and the other big places and the nightshades and the manufactories of the world, the truth is L.A. is a gigantic landscape and people on carts and trucks and in their own homes are feeding their communities directly where they're at. That's wonderful. Um, Do you want to give us um, some of your favorite street food or food trucks and then just your general, the Farley Elliott, not senior editor Farley (laughs) Elliott, I'm a Farley Elliott's favorites. Well, I I make absolutely no shame in saying that if uh, if the mayor kicked in the door right now and asked me to be out of town by tomorrow morning, I would I would go to the El Chato taco truck on Olympic and La Brea tonight. They are not the most, quote unquote, authentic. They are not uh, the most, quote unquote, regionally specific, but they are a delicious and great example of a family run operation that does crazy volume and just makes good food. You know, they were there right at the beginning before Tacos Leo was down the street on Venice. You know, it was not naturally kind of a taco neighborhood and they've they've become an icon there. They're always sitting in that little auto body shop right on the right-hand side. Their Al Pastor quesadilla with the thick kind of smoky chipotle salsa is everything that I could possibly ask for out of a last meal. You know, other street food stuff, I've been really lately interested in the burgeoning scene of folks that are kind of taking one particular idea and then extrapolating it out to its natural extremes. You <laughs> see this in hot chicken right now. Yeah. You know, there's dozens and dozens of hot chicken proprietors <laughs> that are like taking over the valley it's in crazy. Glendale. It's crazy. And a lot of them know each other and it, it all... 
uh, I'm sort of fascinated by uh, Holland Rays, you know, it starts this thing. The guys from Dave's Hot Chicken go yeah. and they try it and they, oh, we could do our own version on this. And they start in a parking lot and then that grows to a restaurant that's really popular. And then a bunch of their friends or family members start doing it too. But now you see Holland Rays relatively recently just put chicken tenders on the menu. Mm. And so it's sort of come full circle again <laughs> that like Holland is, an, is, you know, an inflection of Dave's is back an inflection of Holland again. You see it with Smash Burgers now too. You take a look at things like um, Burgers Never Say Die, yeah. Gold Burgers, which is popping up now, Smosh Town, which is out in Pasadena. It's only more and more of those. So the, the intersection of like what it means to proliferate on Instagram and to be in a cultural zeitgeist moment and maybe be cooking illegally out of your backyard, that's kind of where I'm at right now. You saw it with like barbecue relatively recently from Moose Craft Barbecue to Trudy's, which is now open as a restaurant at Slab on West 3rd Street. So that kind of thing, the growth and progression of it all is really, really fascinating to me lately. Yeah. And with all this growth and diversity that we have right now, what do you think will be the future of the food scene in Los Angeles? I, I do think we're going to see a contraction soon. A lot of places that are going to struggle not only to make it financially, but if you see something like the manufacturing in downtown, they basically go from a non-operating business to sucking 300 people out of the working population of the cities. They're Bakers who were working at other bakeries are now working at manufacturing servers, all that same sort of stuff. And we are already in a in a really kind of a critical mass of, of not having enough servers and not having enough people working in kitchens. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be interesting to see how restaurants that are already getting faced with increasing minimum wage, increasing rents, um, they've got to pay their workers more in order to retain them, you know, that kind of squeeze and then still getting one star Yelp reviews because they charge for water or something. Uh, that squeeze is going to get harder and harder to manage. Margins are already perilously thin for restaurants. Mm -hmm. And you got to think about the holistic approach when it comes to things like minimum wage, which, listen, I am absolutely for minimum wage. I think it's kind of nonsensical that the state of California doesn't have a tipped minimum, which means in a lot of other states you could make below minimum wage and then earn up above that because you get tipped out of front of house. Um, we as a society are not necessarily ready to accept a flat rate 20 percent addition at the end of a bill or a tip line for the kitchen staff or something like that. There's got to be a middle ground in there somewhere. But thinking holistically, it's not just that, okay, I've got to pay my dishwasher minimum wage and my server's minimum wage and my line cooks. I also have to absorb the costs of everybody down my chain, the producers who bring me my beef, the guy who handles my wine, the people who make my bok choy, like all of that stuff also comes with an increasing wage rise. So uh, the folks who don't have a lot of money, the folks who don't come in super heavily capitalized, again, the 65-seat restaurant that's doing one thing, are going to be in for a real ride over the next couple of years. But uh, let, let me say this too. It's not all doom and gloom. I mean, we, <laughs> we, we continue to really thrive at being an amazing place to think innovatively about all sorts of different kinds of cuisines. There's a restaurant opening today on Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood called Dumpling Monster. It's run by a chef named Perry Chung who does forage and tiki fish and things like that. You know, he's got a model that maybe there's 15, 16 seats inside. I'm going to open up and partner with every single delivery app out there and whether they realize it or not, there is a small footprint that I can get away with, say, 300 square feet in West Hollywood. And I know that that neighboring community doesn't naturally have good Chinese food and dumplings, and I know that I can do it well. So as long as I can scale and keep my overhead low, I can make a mint. The Dave's Hot Chicken guys are doing just fine. Mm -hmm. They were in a parking lot a year ago. <laughs> it's just about figuring out ways to be smart. How do you, how do you think that 
social media and, you know, Postmates and all of those food delivery apps have been helping these small guys? Well, the delivery apps is a, a tricky conversation. Um, it's really easy to sit on your couch and press a few buttons and have a bunch of breakfast tacos sent to you within 30 minutes. Believe me, I do it a lot. <laughs> um, but I'm also very respectful of not only what it means, especially when you've got like a Postmates driver, to have somebody that is not naturally attached to the restaurant making subsistence living wages just to bring me my food at the front door, that doesn't necessarily feel good. And we need to, I think, have a really open and honest reckoning about what that means to pay other people small sums of money to do things that I could easily do for myself. And at the restaurant level, we have to agree that we are willing to pay more for that right. I'm sure you guys have this young college kids. I still have it with my adult friends. You go to a Whole Foods and you're like, man, why is this beef so expensive? And the truth is like Whole Foods isn't wrong. It's just that we've been wrong all along. We've been subsidizing these things in our minds to a point that it does not necessarily feel right to be paying more. But paying more is really just paying the price that we should have been paying all along for something that is ultimately a luxury. Getting a really nice well-marbled ribeye from Whole Foods or having somebody deliver breakfast tacos while I'm still in my bathrobe is a luxury. <laughs> and I should be willing to pay more for that than I currently am. The Instagram side is a whole other conversation. Yeah. You know, there's a little bit of, of lowest common denominator with that sort of stuff. You're always going to see black charcoal, soft serve, and, you know, big, overly cheesy photos of things that don't actually taste good or get thrown out after first bite and first photo. And that comes with the territory. It can be a great marketing tool if you let it, but it can also be a ruinous sort of disaster. Nobody goes to Little Damage in downtown LA anymore because they've taken the one photo they need of the black charcoal ice cream. Okay. And there's nothing sadder than driving by that place and seeing a wet velvet rope with nobody waiting on the other side. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think there's, I've, we've read a lot of like, um, conversation about this but do you think the michelin guide is going to come back i believe it is i don't have any hard and fast information um on that not that i would tell you if i did <laughs> very secretive thanks uh, <laughs> i'm breaking it on ucla often. um no I, I i believe that it is uh, what i've heard most recently is that it will probably be somewhat of a regional guide maybe involving san diego as well as up through the central coast um the reason f being for that they have some more luxury properties there, coastal properties, things in Orange County specifically, and you can sell ads against that a lot easier. You know, ultimately, the Michelin Guide is a book that needs to be profitable and was not in Los Angeles, especially at the time that it launched. So um, it, anything that they can do, I think, to make sense to bring it back to the city would be helpful. I'm a little bit on Jonathan Gold, rest in peace, his side of things, which is that the city does not necessarily need the Michelin Guide, and we do not eat in a way that the Michelin Guide actually respects. But there are too many talented chefs at a high level, whether it's Vespertine or Odium or 71 Above, doing something that matters to them and to a certain type of diner to not give them recognition. And if the James Beard Foundation isn't going to give Los Angeles the recognition that it deserves, maybe the Michelin Guide will. Otherwise, it's it's guys like me who have a certain size platform that are just screaming from the rooftops about how great <laughs> we all are. And we can do better. We can do more to get more of that recognition. Yeah, who needs the Michelin Guide when you have Eater's 38 Essential Restaurants, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> LA.eater.com. <laughs> Head there. Michelin, who's even heard of it? <laughs> um, 
I want to talk about those sort of things. I'm assuming those are some of your most, or Eater LA's most viewed websites, right? They're posted on, I mean, sorry, pages. They're posted mm-hmm. right on the front page, like, you know, essential and hottest restaurants. Mm-hmm. How do those come about? Is that Eater staff? Um, who makes those maps? So it's a pretty collaborative process city by city. Not every city is full-time. Um, LA happens to be. We've got two full-timers, myself and, and Matt Kang, and then uh, two part-timers, Mono Home and Kathy Chaplin, and, and they're really, really collaborative. We talk a lot about all of those sorts of things. And it's important to us. You know, the Eater 38, the the essential restaurants to eat in Los Angeles is a really hard list to come up with. And it we're never going to satisfy everybody. And, you know, we, we make changes and update the list based on our own experiences and also just based on time. You know, we need to be a city that stays relevant and we need to be a website that continues to talk about that relevance. So um, I understand people's frustrations. You know, we probably hear more feedback every single year um, on one single post than any other, which is at the end of the year, Matt Kang writes a hypothetical Michelin guide post. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's all meaningless. It's it's from one man's brain. Um, but the idea that a restaurant would get demoted or raised up or something creates so much controversy <laughs> that, that you can't believe it. So uh, we do take it seriously. We do try very, very hard to not only spend a lot of time, but foster good relationships with those restaurants. I'm, I'm never exchanging content or the things that I'm willing to write about for money or for free food or for access or any of that sort of stuff. So every once in a while, you've got to make hard decisions and tell people, hey, I'm sorry, we're taking your restaurant off. But it's it's uh, truly, hopefully, a really idealistic reflection of how people are actually dining in Los Angeles, or at least the readers that come to us naturally. Do you actually tell people if you're removing them off a list? Um I don't go out of my way to like email somebody and be like, hey, just as a heads up. Um, but I do have a lot of very frank conversations all the time. The, the reason, to be honest with you, that I went to Nomad the other night and sat at the bar by myself was because they'd had that review from the LA Times and also because we had just taken off, taken them off of our essential downtown list. And I got a very concerned email from people associated with the property wondering what had happened. And I said, hey, you know what? Like I'd had a meal here a while ago where people knew who I was and it was nice, but I could tell that there were hiccups other places and we've got a lot of other great restaurants in downtown be talking about but it did make me think oh, i should go back in by myself just to see what it's really like and so we we hear from those people whether or not we reach out directly ourselves anyway and it is uh, a good check you know again i don't i don't need to be a guy who wanders around the city rich with power and never getting like emails that tell me i'm doing something wrong it's good to make it a dialogue mm-hmm. all right well we're wrapping up here in a few minutes um i'm sorry i have to ask i'm ready you're like what are you gonna do um, what is the what happened with tiny hamsters eating tiny burritos? <laughs> what was that production like? Was I, it fun? You knew it was coming, didn't you? I thought I could get away with it, but not quite. <laughs> uh, yeah, easily the weirdest seventy-two hours of my life. So uh, uh, the shortened version again. I used to do comedy stuff, and my friend Joel Jensen. He was also still in the UCB comedy community, and. He was part of a company that he co-founded with a good friend of his where they were just doing like viral ad campaigns, essentially. And their name was never associated with anything. And they'd won a couple of Webby Awards, but that was kind of the extent of it. And they had this idea to do this hamster video and to sell it to a company. Say it was Bird's Eye Frozen Burritos or whatever it happened to be. And that company didn't bite on it. And he said, you know, I think it's still a good idea. I I wonder if we could turn this into something and, and make it a name for ourselves, for our company. It was called Denizen. And so... 
I he knew me from doing comedy stuff. He knew me from doing restaurant stuff. At the time, I had a website. I'm over, over, under everywhere online. It was my early website when I was freelancing because people would always spell my name wrong or not remember it. And I thought, let's give something easy for them to remember. <laughs> and so on my, my blog at the time, I, I would just make these little situational videos of me cooking something and putting it online with my friend just to kind of test out equipment. And he saw those and he's like, oh, you know, you should you should see if you want to come and we'll do this thing. And I said, okay, sure, why not? And so they hired some hamsters. They're trained hamsters. <laughs> and um, I, I spent the weekend getting a list from the from their trainers on what they could and couldn't eat and kind of R&Ding stuff out of the kitchen to, to figure out what we could make that would approximate a burrito. And then we just shot it in an afternoon. And I thought I was helping out a friend of mine. They put it online probably within 48 hours. It had, you know, five, six million views. I think it's up to 12 million sure. hours, something like that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I got called by Good Morning America to go fly out and, and do a live <laughs> broadcast i was like absolutely not like <laughs> i don't know this hamster what are you guys trying to set me up for uh yeah truly truly crazy and something i still get recognized for occasionally which is like bonkers to me because i have an entire unrelated career and i, I so every time i think i'm cool at the job i actually have people be like hey, you're the guy from the hamster <laughs> and i realize i'm just as normal as anybody else that's great well Thank you for coming here today and talking to us about food of course. and the industry in L.A. Um, we love chatting with you. Yeah, um, you can find him at Over Over Under, right? Yep. Yep. As well as Farley Elliott, Eater L.A. That's it, la.eater.com. We're running stories every single day, and hopefully we've got a lot more fun stuff. We might be launching a podcast, you know, features, really oh. cool, broad histories of Los Angeles in in unique and interesting ways that go just beyond the news. So we're excited for a lot more in 2019. And thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Very much. Thank you. This was The Menu on UCLA Radio.com.